This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. We're studying the book of Hebrews this season on Office Hours, and we're at chapter 12. The theme of Hebrews, Jesus is really better. Joining us today is Dr. David Vendrunen, the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. He's a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the author of several books, including Living in God's Two Kingdoms and Natural Law and Two Kingdoms, a study in the development of Reformed social thought. These volumes and others are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks. Good to be here. So we're in chapter 12, and we'll dive right in. We've got a lot of material to cover. Verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the context in which Hebrews comes, you can refresh our memories a little bit, how does this chapter fit? What's going on here? Yes, one of the main issues that's going on in the book of Hebrews is the author's writing to this congregation that's obviously struggling, and they're tempted to give up, to go back to Judaism, to give up the things that they've confessed. And you can see right off the bat in those first two verses that you read that there's this encouragement to keep going, to keep pressing on for that which is before them. And Certainly one of the things that we'll see as we get into the later verses is that there's this realization that the Christian life is going to be one of suffering, and so you there's going to be this temptation to give up when you see the opposition, you see the trials and temptations that come. And so this chapter is in part trying to encourage them to keep going in the midst of these temptations that inevitably come. And also, we'll see later in this chapter that there's further reason not to go back to the Old Covenant for them to realize that their eyes should not be set on where they've been so that they want to go back, but that their eyes are set forward and so that they, they're striving toward that heavenly goal whose blessings they already participate in in so many ways. What is the imagery embedded in these opening verses of chapter 12 when it says, so great a cloud of witnesses? Is there a picture that's being invoked for us here? Well, certainly important here would be the previous chapter in chapter 11, this great chapter of faith. The authors held before us all of these Old Testament saints who faced a lot of trials, but who believed the Word of God and persevered. And they have, in a sense, gone before us. And so here's this cloud of witnesses. They're not so much saying that they're, they're witnesses and that they're watching us every moment. You know, we got Moses and Abraham and Noah up there keeping an eye on us, so much as they're witnesses of the fact that if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is faithful, and He will preserve His people, and He will bring us all to the appointed end. And so they are, in a sense, witnesses to us of the reality of our faith and the good purpose and good result as we continue to cling to Christ. These are the folks who were looking forward to Jesus, and, and it is to these that the Hebrew Christians are being tempted to go back. And the writer to the Hebrews, the pastor, is saying, well, look, if you're actually interested in what these people actually believed, 
then you need to believe in Jesus. You need to keep trusting in Christ and not turn away because they were looking for the very same thing. And then he turns to an image that of the race that is set before us, and we're to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter. What's the message there? He compares the Christian life, he describes it as a, as a race, and that's really, I, I think that's a really profound uh, image, and something actually I've been thinking about recently, even before I knew we were going to be talking together about this chapter, and you know, I've been in, in, in some of the writing and teaching that I do, I, I've, I've thought a lot about the idea of the Christian life as, as, an, as an exile, as, as, as a sojourning. It, they can, you find that uh, imagery in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.11, for example. And I think that that's a really important part of understanding the Christian life. And I think in certain ways, this idea of the race has some similar implications, but in some ways it's even more complex. And when when the Christian life is described as a race, it seems to me that one of the main things that that communicates is that we need to set our eyes on the finish line, because in in a race, the main point is getting to the finish line. I mean, hopefully, if it's a competitive race, you want to get there first. That's not really what's in view here, but the idea is you need to get to the finish line, and it's not about... It's not really so much about enjoying the process so much as it is getting to the end. And anybody who's ever run a race will tell you. I mean, it's not. Yeah, I have a very unglorious history, but I, I ran cross country a little bit, and I've run some distance races many years ago. And I do remember being completely shocked at the the first race we ever ran. Bang goes the gun, and it's a it was a mile or mile and a half or two miles or something, and everybody took off on a dead sprint. And I've never fully recovered because I thought, hey, what are you people doing? You're crazy. We have two miles to go here. Let's pace this thing a little bit. So it it wasn't a particularly enjoyable process. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. That's right. And I I mean, as as I think about this, I, I... I, I do some running. I, I'm not a comp- I've never been a competitive runner, but I just run to stay in shape. And in the neighborhood where I live, I, I, I run outside. One of the nice benefits of living in Southern California, you can run outside all the time. And there, there, are, there are some big hills, really big hills. And if I'm going to go do this, and I'm not doing it for the pure enjoyment, I'm doing it because I want to stay in shape. And if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. So I'm going to run up these big hills. And uh, it's not comfortable running up these hills. I actually uh, I, I fondly refer to one of these hills as the Hill of Pain. And uh, when I'm running up the hill of pain, it's not like I'm finding pure enjoyment in the way my legs feel or my lungs feel, but you you want to keep going. I want to get done. Uh, And I'm not sure how much to push this, but I think that really does tell us something important about about the Christian life. And, you know, there are good times in the Christian life. There are many wonderful things to enjoy, you know, both the the general material things that God has given to us and, of course, the spiritual blessings we have. In some ways, that's sort of like running downhill. You know, if you run up a hill, there's also big hills to run down. And boy, you feel really good running down those big hills. You feel like you could just beat anybody. And there are times in life when the Lord feel, we feel like the Lord's really blessing us, and we, fi- we, we find a lot of joy in the things that God gives us to do. But then there are times you get to the bottom of that hill, and you have to start running up again, and times that life doesn't quite seem so good, and there are trials and temptations, and there's persecution. And we need to keep remembering in good times and bad times, when we're running uphill and downhill, that it's the finish line that is set before us, and we keep our eyes ahead. And the runner of the race isn't going to win if he's up looking around and enjoying 
enjoying the good scenery. He's got to keep focused. And and I think that is, you know, we have to keep our eyes to, on Jesus because Jesus has already reached the finish line. He's already gone through the heavens and he's interceding for us at the right hand. And that's our goal. And in some ways that has so many implications in that, you know, we... It should change our attitude towards death, for example, uh, is that it's, we live in a culture that wants to live forever. We have all this technology to help us live for so long, and, and yet we need to be careful that we don't forget that you know, our goal is reaching glory. And for as long as God gives us, we, we, we persevere here, but we're always looking forward to, to, to what's to come above all. So we're looking for two things, or add two things. One, the finish line, and two, Jesus, who is the first runner. So maybe a, a sort of a pace setter, which is, you know, sometimes in reaction to the exhortation to be like Jesus, we say, well, no, we need to trust in Jesus, who was the obedient one for us. But now having trusted in him, there is a sense in which he does become a model for us. So it's not like we have to choose and say, well, we can never speak of Jesus as a model, because, of course, Hebrews does it here uh, right in front of us. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So the race he had to run was, a, in, in some respects, a different race. We're called to take up our cross metaphorically, but he took up a cross, literal. So there are continuities, I guess, and discontinuities. And then, of course, the image changes to being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So his finish line took him to the Holy of Holies, to use a, an image that Hebrews uses earlier, and now the throne, which is a position of power and glory and, and sovereignty. So Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. And here we're beginning to get a feel for maybe what these Christians are, are enduring. Against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So walk us through this imagery now. Christ is this, this uh, the one who has gone before us. And as you said, he, is, he has gone before us as one who has purchased the way to God for us and is bringing, we might say, bringing us along in his train. This is in, in some ways picking up from back in Hebrews 2, uh, Christ having been crowned with honor and glory and now bringing many sons to glory after him. And so, so here we are uh, in the midst of the struggles and the temptations and trials of this life. And we are told to consider him who has, who has gone before us and the one who who uh, endured the cross for us. And, you know, verse 4 is, in some ways, kind of depressing. It says, you know, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, which seems to indicate it's coming soon for them. And he's not here to give them a really nice message that everything's going to be everything's going to be fine, you know, just a short time. Well, no, there's maybe even worse times coming than what they've already endured. Well, and it's 64, roughly 64 AD, and so we know in 67, hostilities are going to break out between Israelites and Rome, and then in 70 AD, here is going to come Rome in full military response to this rebellion, and it's going to crush the rebellion, wipe out Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and alter the landscape of Palestine for all 
history thereafter. Yeah, and it so so in that context of this suffering that is coming upon them, the author puts it in terms of this discipline of the Lord, and it is interesting that he doesn't say you know this is punishment from the Lord or this is judgment from the Lord, but this is discipline, and we don't always make that clear distinction in our you know maybe we talk about punishing our children or disciplining our children, but there really is a a, a difference in that, and he doesn't threaten to punish us. In a sense, we appreciate that because uh, uh, Jesus has endured the punishment for us. Uh, he has ultimately under uh, he he underwent the judgment of God on our behalf. But that doesn't mean that the Father doesn't discipline us. And the purpose of discipline is not to pay us back. The purpose of discipline is to shape us and to, as it says here, it's an expression of his love for us uh, as parents discipline their children because they care about them and they want them to grow in maturity and wisdom uh, in this world. So here and in the following verses, uh, there, it, this is all put in the context of uh, discipline. And there's a quotation here from Proverbs 3, uh, verse 11, that uh, says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. First of all, it's interesting that the pastor quotes Proverbs this way. Maybe we could think about what that means about how we should use Proverbs. But secondly, he applies Proverbs to this congregation, takes this sort of general maxim and applies it to a particular instance. How do we know, according to Proverbs 3 and now Hebrews 12, God's fatherly care for us. And contrast that with maybe some prevailing popular views. And you can answer the question right after this. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. I think it's important to say that God's discipline is not something that we can put into some sort of exact calculus. He doesn't set it forth here in terms of, okay, if you do these sorts of things, these are the things that are going to come upon you. It is interesting that this is a quote from Proverbs, that this is wisdom literature, and a fatherly discipline of his children is a matter of wisdom, and God in his wisdom disciplines us, and he knows what's good for us in ways that we have no idea what's good for us. He, he knows how to bring us through various trials in order to make us the kind of people that, that, that we ought to be uh, conformed uh, unto the image of His Son. And so we, we approach God's discipline uh, not as those who, in a sense, can, can claim anything before God or act as if we, we know what's coming and we have some sort of demands against Him, but we, uh, we, we humbly submit to it knowing that God in His wisdom is doing exactly what is right for us. And to remember that this is an expression of His love for us. And ultimately, as we get to verse 11, 
all right? It, that, that discipline seems painful at the time, and he doesn't get around that. He doesn't get. He doesn't say that this discipline is going to be enjoyable while, while it's going on, but he does say that it yields this fruit of righteousness. And so we have to remember that that's the purpose of it, and uh, that should be that should be a great encouragement to us because we should desire our sanctification, and uh, that's precisely God's goal uh, for us as He brings us through these various trials. In contrast to the popular health and wealth teaching, right, that is out there, which says uh, those whom God loves, He blesses with material wealth, and therefore, if you are materially wealthy, uh, this is a sign of divine approval. The writer to the Hebrews, the pastor to the Hebrews, says that we, just as our earthly fathers discipline us, so our heavenly Father disciplines us. And he says this discipline is proof that we are actually sons. In verse 8, he says, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And so, contrary to the way we're tempted to think sometimes, actually, when we're being chastised by the Lord, that's actually a proof that He loves us and proof that we are children. Therefore, He says in verse 12, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. You can almost hear this fellow, right, this pastor, preaching this. It is very pastoral because he knows that these people are, are discouraged in many ways, and they've obviously been through a lot, and they're going to be through more, and so he's trying to strengthen them. And the very imagery of drooping hands and weak knees, it's, you know, it's, it's people who are, who are running a race and just don't feel like they can go any further. They're, 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 they're going up the hill of pain, and they just can't go another, another foot. And so there is this—he he comes to them in the midst of their struggles and gives them these, these, these exhortations in light of the fact of God's love for them. And uh, and that's really how you know that that's how he operates here. He's not he's not trying to scare them into obedience, but he's he's trying to encourage them with the love of God for them. We begin to get a sense too of some of the struggles they were facing in particular. He warns them about a root of bitterness that can spring up and by which people have become defiled. He uh, speaks about sexual immorality in verse 16. He reminds us of Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. So there are a variety of ways that people can become distracted and be led astray and to leave what they ought to have by grace alone through faith alone. In other words, here you see the reality of the the administration of the covenant of grace. And he's pointing to people who've participated in the covenant community and who've made professions of faith and yet who have turned away from that profession. Right. What he says there in verse 15, you know, he warns against this root of bitterness springing up. And that's really understandable when you're going through these sufferings that people can turn bitter in the midst of this. And what is the fruit of bitterness? Well, you know, and he says, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Bitterness doesn't tend to promote harmonious relations with others. It tends to break apart relationships. And so you can see that there are these temptations that they're really struggling with. And so calling them, you're not like Esau. I mean, Esau was one who rejected his birthright for a single meal. In other words, he was only looking at what was right in front of him. He wasn't like the one running the race who had that goal set before him. Don't get caught up in the bitterness and the temptations and the passions of the moment, but keep your eyes set upon Christ. And here he comes with the because in verses 18 through the end of the chapter in 29, so the last half. For, or because, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure 
the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What do we do with this? What does this because mean? Well, I think it's important to understand this in light, again, of the bigger message of Hebrews. And in those first few verses that you read, this imagery is that of Mount Sinai. And so he's taking us back to Exodus 19 and that awesome scene before the giving of the law. And when we remember that these folks were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, you can understand why he's, in a sense, reminding them, you're not at Mount Sinai anymore. And we're still at a mountain. We're still coming to a mountain, but that mountain is Mount Zion. And even back in the Old Testament story, of course, that when God took his people out of Egypt, Mount Sinai was not the final destination. The final destination was Zion. That was the place where the temple would be built. That was the place where David would reign. In this way, he's reminding God's people here that you're not at Sinai anymore with its threatenings, with its warnings, with its judgments. You've come to Mount Zion, not to the earthly Mount Zion, but to this heavenly Mount Zion. And he's been, in so many ways throughout this book already, he's been trying to get the people to understand that they have a high priest who's already reigning in the heavenly temple, whose blood is testifying in the heavenly temple. And it's a wonderful thing. He's saying, oh, you've already come there. You already have a claim to this Mount Zion. You already have a share in it. And even though you have your eyes on the goal of, in a sense, getting there in person, even now we have a place in that great glorious city. It's a temptation sometimes to think that, oh, if only I were back when Moses were on the mountain and there was thundering and you could see it. And I've had people say that to me, Pastor, I wish I'd been there. That's understandable because we tend to favor the things that we can see as opposed to the things that we hear. So it's not as if we're not hearing the word, but we'd like to see these things. And yet the writer to the Hebrews is writing to people who hadn't seen, who hadn't been there. Some of them, doubtless, were believing in Jesus, whom they had not seen with their eyes. And so it's very interesting as you say, he takes us to the heavenly Mount Zion, and he contrasts the first mediator, Moses, with the second mediator. Verse 24, I've always found really remarkable. Who's at the top of this mountain? And to Jesus, what's his office? Mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Talk about that contrast that he's just set up. Right. But way back in, what was it, chapter 3, I mean, he made the point that Jesus is better than Moses, and you have to understand that. And Moses was a kind of mediator of that old covenant, but that old covenant was, yeah, it was spectacular. It was awesome to see, but it was ultimately, it was a, it was a covenant in which people were kept at a distance from God. The mountain was fenced off. They couldn't go there, and it was frightening to them, whereas the vision we have here of the heavenly Mount Zion is one of nearness, is one of actually we're there, we're participating, and Jesus is there. Our heavenly hope is that we will be with Christ forever, and that even now we claim him as ours, and he pours out these blessings upon us from heaven. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Moses did not cross over. Jesus did. And to say mediator is to say the one who stands between us and the Father, who represents us to the Father, and because he represents us, we are there. In contrast with the Old Covenant, which was incomplete, which was inferior, and which ultimately didn't accomplish the things that it illustrated. 
And we are recipients of the new covenant, sealed not by the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Jesus, who is God the Son incarnate. So we have all of these benefits, right, in the new covenant that they didn't have. So, verse 25, he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? So there's a contrast. At that time, verse 26, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So help us with that contrast. Yeah, well, here he's really pointing our eyes ahead to the final judgment, and it's a reminder that the warnings and the curses of the Old Covenant were really pointing ahead to that final judgment. It was a reminder of the fact that disobedience to God's law ultimately brings judgment. And here we were reminded that the judgment coming on the last day is to be far, far greater than whatever the curse the people experience under Moses. And there's this reminder here is that, you know, if you don't persevere in your faith— in Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, there's no other hope. There's no other participation in this heavenly Mount Zion. And so if you reject him who's there in heaven, who's already God, who's finished the work and is already reigning there, what's left for you? So if, if you refuse him, how in the world are you going to escape? And this judgment is a powerful judgment that's coming, and it's going to shake the heavens and the earth, and there's going to be no more chances. It was forbearing to his people under the old covenant. He gave them chances again and again and again, but there's a final judgment coming, and this world as we know it is going to come to its appointed end. And so there's a real sense of urgency here that you can't put this off. You need to come to Jesus and, and cling to him now. And he elaborates on this image of things that can be shaken in contrast with things that cannot. And the kingdom that we have, of which Jesus is king, cannot be shaken. Verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We're tempted to think sometimes about the God of the New Covenant or the New Covenant as if God were more tolerant and less interested in details and less righteous, less holy. But the writer to the Hebrews really goes in a very different direction, doesn't he? Yeah, it's almost as if things are ratcheted up, aren't they? Yeah, it's not that God has become any less holy or any less concerned about his justice or any of that. But I think the real difference here is that not now under the new covenant, God has He secured our holiness. He secured our righteousness. And so God's demands haven't changed and God's holy character haven't changed, but we have changed, we who participate in the new covenant through Christ. And we still are called to this reverence and awe. And yeah, there's a sense in which there's a reverence and awe before the God who's bringing this great judgment upon the world. But I think in a lot of ways, that's not really the heart of the reverence and awe for us, because we're not scared of that judgment as those who are resting in Christ. But isn't there a sense in which, a really important sense in which we hold God in reverence and awe in light of the awesomeness of his mercy to us, in light of the awesomeness that he has established a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and he's made us participants in that. And, you know, if we think about what human people do we hold in a certain sense of reverence or certain awe, sometimes we express awe before other human beings, we might do it before someone who's threatening us, someone who's holding a gun to our head, but we also talk about being in awe before 
a great musician or a great athlete that we see do things that we just can't do. There's certain awe at, at someone who is so good. I think that sense is definitely there here. Yes, we recognize God as a God of judgment, a God of holiness, but we're in awe of him that such a God as this would appoint a mediator for sinners like us and give us a share in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That, boy, if we're not in reverence and awe of a God like that, what would it take? Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.